This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is John Pomp, the founder of the lighting and furniture company that bears his name. As a young man, John fell in love with glass blowing. What started as an obsession soon became a growing business. A maker through and through, at every step of the way, John has pushed to control and perfect everything his company does. Whether that's manufacturing its own nuts and bolts in-house, or building a skateboarding ramp for his kids onto the floor of his Philadelphia workshop. I spoke with John about why makers need to own their own real estate, the delicate balance between scaling a business and staying creative, and why everything he does comes down to a quest for self-reliance. This podcast is sponsored by High Point Market. If you go to High Point Market a lot, and I certainly do, you hear one thing over and over. It's about much more than just seeing new product. High Point is where you make the connections that will take your business to the next level. And it's no wonder. High Point is where all the leaders in the home industry meet twice each year. Come for the products, come back for the people. This spring, market is April 2nd through the 6th. Get your pass today at highpointmarket.org. This podcast is also sponsored by Modern Matter, the producer of statement-making decorative and kitchen hardware. Handcrafted using solid brass and hand-polished gemstones, Modern Matter has over 500 knobs, pulls, and backplates in stock and ready to be delivered to your doorstep within 24 to 72 hours. Browse exclusive collections developed in partnership with leading designers like Michelle Nussbaumer, Eddie Ross, Barry Benson, and Sarah Bartholomew. In mixing and matching metal finishes with semi-precious gemstones and other luxury materials. Visit modern-matter.com to see how the company is redefining hardware. That's modern-matter.com. And now, on with the show. So much of what we've been talking about for the past couple of years have been these supply chain challenges, yeah. right? And and all of the sort of frustration that so many manufacturers have been facing. And I wonder what that has looked like for you. And are there challenges related to that that continue to you for this to this day? Uh, I wish it didn't. But yeah, of course. <laughs> We live in this world and we're connected, right? Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, challenging for all of us, um, of course, like emotionally. and But from the manufacturing supply chain end, we have the same challenges that anybody has ordering anything almost, right? <laughs> I will say that uh, we are in the unique place that we're like an ecosystem inside our facility because we we don't rely on any outside processing. So, um, and I worked tirelessly <laughs> for that for many decades, but when we make glass, we really make our own raw material. And so we're, we're making all of our pieces from raw materials to finished goods under this roof, uh, which is a huge advantage. So as long as I can get the raw materials, I'm good to go. So I will say that 
my pain has been less than most of my peers uh, mm. that that manufacture that have like a lot of supply chain issues regarding that. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I ask in part because, as you were just saying, you've spent years <laughs> try, trying to. I'm crying as you're saying it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's been such an effort. Yeah. But but you really have gotten to a point of vertical integration. Yeah. As, as you say, there are all these sort of unexpected uh, people tell us, oh, we can't get staples or we can't yeah. get, right? The sort of yeah. things that you just wouldn't even be expecting. But for your own materials, for your actual manufacturing yeah. materials, you've been able to get your arms around that and get control of that. Absolutely. So in that way, we're feeling very blessed in, in all of my efforts, all those decades to like <laughs> slowly make sure that we make everything ourselves is really paying off, you know, and I think being vertical and, and being able to control your manufacturing, every part of it, like we, we're making nuts and bolts and like we have a machine shop, sheet metal shop, we make all of our glass, we have a wood shop, like we're doing our own leather processing, like everything is done here. I rely on nobody. And to be honest with you, <laughs> it's funny because all of my life, all I wanted to do is rely on me. I can count on me and my team. So if I put my right. name to something, like the motto was always like, you know, I stand by it like I stand by my team. And and I built I built it that way here, which is really cool. And I'm really proud of it. You know, it took a long time and it was painful. And it's kind of, it's interesting how you see other manufacturers now. They're, everybody's, reshoring or onshoring right or trying exactly trying yeah. to get Bring, back bringing to it, it all back oh yeah yes and they're every and everybody's like oh yeah john you're so lucky or you're like we're like makers alliance guys we're like oh yeah you don't have it you know i don't have as much now yeah of course things you know are out of our control and weird innocuous parts and pieces at times like i don't make our own light bulbs yet i could <laughs> if i wanted to <laughs> but but originally what was driving you to want to be able to control it all? What um, made you yeah. feel so passionate about vertically integrating the the operation in the way that you have? You know, it, it's two things. I think, you know, I'll go really deep. This like therapy <laughs> question, right? Yes, um, the way please. I grew up, I mean, I, you know, I'm a working class town, working class family. My father, mm. you know, what you say is your word and you, you do as you say, you know. And um, I think that... I've also just kind of been wired to like crave responsibility. And I think that in the long term, it's really about responsibility. I'm responsible for that nut and bolt. I'm responsible for all those pieces and parts. I'm responsible for my team. So I say, I think that I just really crave that type of control. And, you know, and yeah, I guess you could just kind of talk about being a control freak, but I think. I really, really more am interested in talking about responsibility. And I think that's very different in this day and age too. But as I've gotten into the business, I'll, I'll kind of fast forward into my early career. Like, you know, when I started to really learn that everything is customizable and the majority of everything that we all make, the designers want to make to spec specification. Well, my God, like, <laughs> if you can't if you can't control the manufacturing, how are you going to deliver right. a complex like you know like we have a credenza, our Rondell credenza? It's like Jesus, it's like hundreds of parts, <laughs> and it's you know it's just one credenza and it's hundreds of parts, and it's like a you know right now it's a you know 
67 page document, you know, in, from the engineering team to be able to honestly deliver that, you know, with your own word mm. and with your team and stand by it. Like you can only do that if you control your manufacturing, you know, you can say that I'd like it to be this and I'm going to try to get it there. And, you know, and, and that's okay. And there's many companies that do that. And that's, that's just their choice. And I think, and, and I think they get a benefit from that too, because they can actually, you know, grow companies differently and, and not have to like work on, you know, being vertical inside of manufacturing. Right. But, you know, to be honest with you, like I grew up a craftsman, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a son of a carpenter. Right. So like, if I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. Like, I'm not going to half make it, half make the parts, half, half assemble it. Half of it's my word to deliver it when I say I'm going to deliver it to that accuracy and to that specification when I don't really know that I can. Let's talk a little bit about your, your dad and, and, and your, and your youth, right? Because I mean, I know, I know that's a a huge influence on you growing, growing up and, and your father being a craftsperson and, and. Uh, and and also as as you as you mentioned your your high school art teacher who who sort of plays a major huge role, right and you're huge in the path that you that you end up uh, end up taking and if I if I remember yep. even perform the the ceremony later later on for you and your your wife when you got married he in fact did I grew up in Western Pennsylvania and you know I just grew up with my father like just making useful things for me he would just make toys for me and make a cutting board for my mom, just all kinds of like crazy stuff, you know, and odd things. It's just, just stuff. It's just, it's just what you did. Right. So, you know, my father is from, from the States and my mom's from Hong Kong and they met in the Vietnam war. My father served in the war, but long story short, you know, my, my mom moved here and, um, you know, making things around the house and my dad's building homes and whatever. And, which is cool. And I was fortunate enough to have a really influential art teacher in high school, a, a very young guy at the time who was fresh out of art school himself, a sculptor, in fact, who graduated with a glass degree of all things. And he kind of, you know, I will tell you, I was probably the, the worst student in high school. I barely graduated <laughs> high school, literally. <laughs> You and I are in competition for yeah. that, John. So oh, okay. Welcome so. to the club. I'm the president. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was very expressive and a bit of a bad kid. And um, and so, uh, but I was very fortunate that I had an art te- that art teacher in high school who kind of saw something in me and man, that's all it took. And so that's really cool. So we kind of like connected in a really way, in a real way and opened up my whole world so, yeah, so I, 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 and I apprenticed with him out at his personal sculpture studio uh, outside of high school. I was so, like, passionate about art and it opened up my world. And um, I was, I put a portfolio together for two years. And I was like, man, I, at the time, I was like, I just want to be a painter. I just want to, like, I want to go paint. I want to go to New York and paint. Actually, I want to go to New York and paint. Right. That and, was originally the idea. Yeah. So, but also, like, I put a portfolio together, and then I got a. I was fortunate to get a scholarship to go to the Columbus College of Art and Design. My art teacher in high school, Norman, he was helping me pick out electives in school, and he was just like, "Oh, you know, you you have a you have an elective. Why don't you just try glass?" And I was just like, 
glass for what? What is that? Like, what am I going to do with glass? Like, I want to paint. And he was just like, oh, it's just an elective. And I, I have a feeling you're going to really like it. And I was like, all right. And I knew he did it. So, I mean, listen, I, right. I listened to right. him like, you know, he was my role model. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go try it. So I took this glass blowing class, introductory glass blowing class. And like, I kid you not, I was just not really that interested in being there. I like was involved. I, I grabbed the pipe as my turn. Like, here's what would you do this or that reach into the furnace with this glass blowing pipe and just scoop it up like honey. And Dennis, like <laughs> that moment just defined the rest of my life. And I was like, right then and there, it just snapped me back to all these, these flow states that I loved as a kid, um, as a teenager, you know, skateboarding, skiing, snowboarding. And so it, so it took you back to these flow states of where you, you were just so consumed in yeah. what you were doing that you, you weren't thinking about anything else. No. Yeah. So yeah, just, just like non-rep painting, like painting, it's just like in the moment, completely immersed in, especially with glass, like. Like you can stop if you want to stop painting, you can stop painting and go like go take a break and go have a sandwich. Right. right. For glass, it's not like that. You know, you pick up a piece of molten glass, you finish it. Like there's no stopping. The moment you start, you you finish and and it's moving. So it's in a constant state of flux and you're moving with it and there's a dialogue and it's a and it's a beautiful, beautiful process. And it's magical. It's so magical. So I fell in love with it, and I was like, that's going to do the rest of my life. I was like, I'm done. That's it. Help me understand how you just knew in that moment that this was all you wanted to do. And it literally, I mean, you became obsessed with glass blowing, right? I mean, Completely. It, 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 it's not too strong a word. To no, 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 no. Oh, no, not at all. Completely obsessed. And I think, what, well, what happened was, how did I know? I don't, I've never had one of uh, another, one of those moments in my life. Molten glass just makes sense to me. And I'm, I'm wired for that. It's a part of you. Yeah. It's a part of you. So suddenly you blow glass and you realize this is, this is your life's work. And what happens next? Well, yeah. And you know, I'll tell you about the obsessive part just to, which is, <laughs> which is kind of cool. You know, I was so into glass. I didn't want to do shit. So if I wasn't thinking about it, I was doing it. If I wasn't doing it, I was reading about it. If I wasn't reading about it, I was like on the way to meet somebody to do it or talk about it. And then I found the best glass maker in the area. And then I apprenticed with him 20 hours a week outside of school because school wasn't providing me enough. So I was like, I was, I was all in. And again, falling in my mentor's footsteps, the, my art teacher in high school, he had graduated from Tyler in glass. And I followed his footsteps and finished that glass program. And after I graduated, the school asked me to come back to teach. So I spent another year teaching. But while I was teaching at Tyler School of Art, I also was developing a whole like uh, accessories collection for New York market. And it was cool. I, I took the collection up to New York and it, and it took off. And so I, I then built all of my equipment in Philadelphia at the time. I moved to New York in 1999. I signed a lease, a 10-year lease for a building in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. <laughs> I think it's a Shake Shack now. Like I had a key spot and there was like hookers and drug dealers everywhere and and I said, well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, t tell listeners what that scene was like at that time, because 
Oh, it was so cool. The scene in Williamsburg in the 90s was magic. It was yeah. like, it was magic. It was fantastic. It was all artist and it was really rough and it was really honest and it was, it was a great place to be at the time. And um, so it just took off and, you know, I was fortunate to kind of, I was selling wholesale. So I was kind of go, selling to like Barney's and Arrow and all these great places, all these design driven places. And so, and it was cool because like, I was kind of like the only guy doing glass, modern glass accessories at the time. And the only person that was doing stuff similar was Jonathan Adler, but in ceramics. So, so we were friends and I used to sell stuff at his place early on, like early. Hmm. So that was kind of cool, you know, and that's kind of how I got. Well, and, and how did the, how did the collection for Arrow happen? Yeah. You know, actually I just kind of like, I went to my favorite places and I, I had a collection that I really designed and made. And I was like, I walked into that shop and I was like, yeah, I want to, I don't know. This was crazy. I was young, <laughs> but I showed them, I laid all my stuff out and the design director was just like, oh shit, wait here. And then he calls Thomas O'Brien. Thomas O'Brien's uptown somewhere or whatever. And he takes a cab down, looks at the stuff, and then like locks an exclusive on that collection. And that was kind of like my first first little break there and getting my first collection out. How exciting. That, that yeah, must it was have, super that must cool. Have and Thomas is awesome. And he from there, I had multiple other collections in other places. And I sold in all types of different places and did a collection for Tiffany's and Barney's and all kinds of places like that. And, and uh, you know, and while I had high visibility in Williamsburg, Brooklyn with all the creatives there, and I had an open glass shop and people walk by open garage door, they see fire, we're blowing glass. Like, <laughs> so everybody kind of like, I was just getting on everybody's radar. And what happened was from there, we, um, everybody was calling me, a lot of designers were getting to know me and they're like, oh yeah, I love your stuff. Would you, could you make me some like, like this or that and custom projects. So then I was just, and I was dabbling in lighting at the time. I was like, I was wholesaling like little pendant fixtures. And, you know, I was at a place where I was making, you know, accessories for so long. I was just like, you know, and it was at a certain point, like you have to like ask yourself, like glass is only beautiful with light. Right. And if you can't control the light source, like, you know, the next progression is, is to have to control the light source and so to make lighting. And so I was doing lighting very early on in the like early nineties. And, um, and then at that time, a lot of designers were coming to me for like custom lighting. So, and they were just coming to you directly originally. Yeah. That's how I kind of like made the transition from like, like wholesale retail to like lighting too. And I was doing custom lighting all the time, but then I was also like, at the time, you know, the, the internet was starting to pop off, right? But, you know, I saw China coming, coming down the road really fast and they were just copying designs and bringing stuff to market so quickly. And it was really hard to be competitive. And I was at a crossroads where I was like, okay, well, either I'm gonna design stuff and have somebody else make it to scale, or I'm gonna make really special shit and make it really high end. And of course that's the way I went because like I'm a maker, right? And so I was very friendly with a director at ICFF at the time. And I was thinking about like doing this collection. I had pieces, a new collection, just completely lighting. And um, anyhow, a spot became available three months before the show. 
like premier corner booth, like front of the show. I was like, and the design director was like, do you want it? Cause I know you have some good stuff coming and, and you make beautiful work. And I was just like done. And at that point, so then that three months, and I don't really tell this story too often. Those <laughs> three months, every night I went to the bar with my books and my sketchbook, my books being history books and my sketchbook. And I designed a collection. I made it. I overextended my credit cards, all of them. Well, right. I mean, this was this was quite a big investment to, to make this happen. I had nothing. And like, you know, you have to go big or go home. Like I, I had to fill this booth with all my lighting collection. So anyhow, long story short, I, I made it to the show and, and um, launched uh, my lighting collection. And because I wanted to get out of accessories and I was fortunate enough to have a lot of key players in the industry be very interested in what I was doing and wanted to represent the collection. So, and that's how it happened. Well, and we, and we should remind listeners, we, when we say ICFF, just for people that, that don't know, yeah. the big international contemporary furniture fair. And, yeah. Right. And this was a place where designers would come, tradespeople, and it, it really sort of helped put you on the map in a, in a, in a great big way. It absolutely and, did for sure. And you know, yeah. everybody went to the show, international show, everybody came, all the design industry, everybody was there. It was a great place to be seen. And eventually that's how I got into the trade business was picked up by some multi-line showrooms as approached by many. And I, ended up kind of moving forward and well and do, and do I remember that Eric Hughes from from DeSouza Hughes was one of the early Yeah, you know, Jeff, I think Jeff found me at the show and he was like okay. he told me this story just a couple of years ago and he was just like I saw your stuff and then I went down the hall and I immediately called Eric and I was like Eric, you get this guy, fly him out here come see the showroom, jump on it right now. And then he saw like Holly Hunt walking down the, the aisleway to our booth. And it was kind of like one of those moments. It was really cool. And, and you know, Eric has always been a little instrumental in kind of finding good talent and nurturing talent. And, yeah. and he kind of showed me the ropes and taught me the business a bit and got me, helped me get formatted. And really I sussed out the collection a lot more and got all the cut sheets straightened out and, <laughs> well, and, and exactly, and, and just as you were saying, customizable, and and earlier you referenced the whole need to be able to make everything custom. And I, I'm I'm curious in the in the beginning what what you learned about the interior design driven industry. What did, what did you have to adjust in your in your thinking and and your process? You know, it's a small industry. I learned a lot of it is like, you know, it's the eighty twenty rule. You know. 80% of the business, the same 20% of designers. And so I, I learned very early on to like make sure you only have one shot at integrity. And I learned that from my father, right? Coming back to the responsibility stuff, right? Yeah. And like by saying I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I never let anybody down. I always over-delivered and it's just, it's just in me and it's, how, it's just what I do. And so I am, once I learned that, I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna, to be honest with you, I'm not gonna fuck up one piece. <laughs> We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about Modern Matter. Modern Matter creates heirloom quality cabinet and furniture hardware. 
Their trade program was developed in partnership with leading interior designers and is focused on helping you make your next project outstanding and successful. With trade-only pricing, a convenient sampling program, and custom manufacturing for large orders. Check out their Instagram handle, Modern Matter Hardware, or visit modern-matter.com to open a trade account and receive $100 off your first order of $500 or more by using the code TRADE100. That's modern-matter.com. And now, back to the show. For the budding entrepreneurs that are listening to the show, John, take us from you extending yourself on your credit cards to get the booth and all the (laughs) products to ICFF. How long did it take you to sort of make that money back once once some of these showroom partners started to discover you and you and you built out i mean uh, yeah, how long life, yeah that took a while because like the life cycle of products and the quoting process is really long and yeah so yeah it took it took a while you know and i'll be honest with you like at that time it was really rough i'll i'll tell you what like right before 2007 2008 i like launched that collection and then I was still in New York at the time. And then I wanted to like, at that time, I also want, needed to like know that I needed to own the real estate in the, in, in the studio. Right. So I was, I was paying through the nose and Williamsburg was just on fire with the real estate. And then at the time I had my, my wife was miserable and she worked as an operations manager at a biotech hedge fund. And I saved her as much as she saved me. <laughs> so it was really good. But she came on, helped me out, launch the collection, the whole thing. And I told her, I was like, we got to control the real estate because you'll never be able to keep up with it. And you, and like, if you're going to make, if we're going to make stuff, you got to control right. the real estate. And so we were looking all throughout Brooklyn and Queens and, you know, we were looking in the outer boroughs and I was like, if you're going to go that far out into New York, we should go, go to Philly because it's way cooler. And that's what happened. And to be honest with you, you know, and that I, I spent time here. I had a network and the amount of artists and craftspeople here are like the community strong. And I came here to be part of it. So she had an apartment in Brooklyn and she was like, oh, well, let's sell it and go buy a place in Philly. I was like, no, 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 no. You hold on to that apartment. Let's go buy this building in Philly that I found through an old friend and I came down, bought a building and, you know, and doubled down on it. I got a good price on it because it was 2009, right? Like the shit was hitting the fan. So it was really good. It was a good time to double down, but you got to have some grit. So I'll tell you the grit story since we're at it. And um, I don't I don't always share this with everybody, but uh, but I am very proud of it, though, nevertheless. So we moved down to Philly you know, and, and I had, I just signed on with my first showroom and I had a collection that I was getting out there, sending samples out there, just starting to sell some stuff. I was still doing some custom stuff up in New York, still selling a little bit of accessories, moved down to this, this big building. It wasn't that big, 7,000 square foot single story building. Perfect. Moved in my glass shop and um, it was me, my wife, and like, just like a helper or two. And we slept on the floor for a year and a half. And I was just like, I'll build you a beautiful apartment. It's going to work. And the collection, just trust me, it's coming. 
And, you know, in that time was really tough. Our industry contracted like 30, 40%. And um, we did it, you know, and we uh, finally got enough funds to build out our beautiful apartment in the, in the facility as well. And, um, and that was it. And that, that kickstarted things. And then, and then it was, a, it was also a really great time to come into the market. I'll also say from the business standpoint, because a lot of the people that were kind of lead competitors at the time that during like glass lighting were also just like not owning their manufacturing, but I did. So I could, I came into the market, undercut them and I just grabbed market share. Okay. So you could undercut them because you had control over your manufacturing. Yeah, absolutely. And I could deliver it too. You know, everybody's tied up in like money and inventory and third party, you know, vendors and like, so that was, that was a good move. And, um, and I just continued to grab market share from there. So then we kept on adding more showrooms to the roster and the team just kept growing. And, you know, at that time too, like I folded in, you know, metal fabricating as well. Obviously we make, you know, we make all of our own metal, but at the time, I, that's the first time that we like brought all that in house. But I have a metal background. I learned how to work with metal because I had to, to make my own glass blowing equipment. So that was, that was a no brainer. So I was like, Oh, Let's put up a metal shop. Here we go. Metal shop, glass shop, boom. We're making lights. And then we were able to plug ourselves into the network with a really great product and away we went. And you, as you this network, so you had all of these sort of great multi-line showroom partners and you'd really started to have a national footprint with that. And yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So we were signing on with partnerships with the showrooms around the country. So as we were doing that, we kept on growing the product line and our product offerings inside of lighting. And then we filled out that building. Then I bought the building next door to me. And that was another 10,000 square feet. So then, and then at that time we started to introduce furniture, which was really great because, you know, at that time lighting was getting really hot and this is in the 2000s, 11, 12. And, you know, at that time lighting was starting to really pick up because there wasn't a lot of great stuff out there. And every designer was trying to find a glass blower and stick a light bulb in a piece of glass, <laughs> which is fine, you know. And so um, I was still making cool lights, but then I wanted to diversify my product offerings and I pivoted to, I felt like there wasn't anybody making any cool uh, glass and metal furnitures. And so that's how I got into the furniture part of the business in 2012. And I you know, we acquired that second building and then filled it out. And tell me how you were juggling the artisan side of you and clearly this this rapidly evolving businessman side of, of you who, who suddenly finds himself scaling th th this great big operation, manufacturing right. operation, multi-line showrooms across the country. How yeah. are you growing all of that? Yeah. And you're right. I was just an artist. So like the business side, like I, like I said, I barely graduated high school. So, but also I will, I will say, you know, in all seriousness that I'm, you know, as much as I'm, you know, right brain and very creative, like I have enough, I have enough left brain and linear thinking to like keep the systems and the organization kind of together. And in my quest for being the best glass maker that I could ever be, 
you know, I, de I dedicated like at that point, like 10, 15 years into glass, you know, and I was making all the product at the time. Right. So if you're going to be like one of the best glass players in the country, you got to have an extreme amount of discipline. Mm. And if you got to make it accurately to spec, especially organic glass, like to spec. And, you know, we weren't making like a ton of molded processes. Everything's like really organic and sculptural, but spec specifications, um, you know, it required an, uh, an undying amount of discipline. And I have, uh, I have a relentless attitude towards anything that I decide to take on. And so, you know, it's funny, I've done, you know, I've done interviews through the past and like, you know, and I did an interview for like business magazines and Forbes and stuff. And they kind of say the same thing. It's like, oh yeah, artist, like artist guy business and all this, whatever. And, and I was like, you know, how are you, do, how do you do that? And it's a similar question, which is okay, you know, cause everybody thinks that it's just the creative part and you're right. You need the, the business part of it to make it all work. You have to. And, and I learned very early on, like once the business started getting going, like glass blowing was only like 15% of it. <laughs> like it was, it, it was nothing. So the 20 years or 15 years I spent at the time were like, it didn't really matter. So now it was just, now it was time to like get studying, make sure I had the right mentors and, um, and I needed to learn what I needed to learn to figure it out. But you want to scale this and grow this and you want to make furniture now and, yeah. and, and get into all of, right? Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I, w I wasn't on a quest for money. I, I was on a quest for money because I was so in debt at a certain point, <laughs> you gotta be. And listen, I, I lured my wife from like a high paying job at a biotech hedge fund. I better fucking make it. This better pay off for her. Like, look me in the eye. I was like, we got it. I got you. Yeah, yeah. It's done. It'll take time. Trust me. Right. And if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So it, it's that attitude, but it, it is. Yeah. So at that time it was like, I had to like pay back all my debt, which is really awesome was growing the company and it was really cool. And that maybe at that time, you know, this is maybe only 15 people deep, you know, modest size company, maybe 20 or so, you know, I was able to offer like healthcare for all of the employees. And it was the first time that I got healthcare myself. And, um, and then soon thereafter, I was really proud to like, you know, be able to offer a 401k program and, and, my, and start my own at the same day that I offered it to my employees. And, you know, and I was really proud of that because to be honest with you, my goal when I got out of college, I was like, I just want to blow glass every day and feed myself. And that's it. Right. What I'll tell you then is like, I didn't really have a quest for more like money at the time, but there was a certain point where I was like, oh, money's a resource and I could buy more tools. Oh, yeah. I want more money because the tools afforded me more creativity and control for my processes because my work's about processes, right? So the more tools you have and you, the more I can develop processes, that's the adding more paint to my palette. So at that point I was very interested in like scaling the company so I can like get some more tools and refine my processes and have more fun and be more creative. And and see where this could take you creatively and and correct. So and and a lot of it I'll say like as I'm designing, we'll get back to some of the design stuff. Like uh, I like bought a home and I was like, oh, I need to furnish a home. I don't have any furniture and I <laughs> I can't afford the nice stuff that I really like too. And 
but I kind of just want to make my own stuff. I was really on a quest to make everything in my home. I wanted to design and make everything in my home. And I'm still on that quest. Are you doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And I do it all the time. I mean, and I, the product line in our offerings, it was always born out of that. And it's still to this day, it is still is, you know, and, and it's not just like a quest for like, you know, you know, scaling products, expanding categories and doing all that. And yes, that's part of it. Cause it's also my responsibility to continue to grow the company to, um, to support my team and their families. You know, that's my job. That's anybody's job. Right. But I, I love the creativity it's affording us. And that's really my driver deep, deep down. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about High Point Market. When you're looking for fresh ideas, look to the home industry's center of innovation. At High Point Market, you'll see the latest and the best in the world of design. From revolutionary new materials and inspiring new styles to proven techniques for growing and managing your business. Get ahead of the innovation curve at the place where the industry meets to reimagine home. This spring, market is April 2nd through the 6th. Get your pass today at highpointmarket.org. And now, back to the show. As you've discovered now that you that you can make money off, off of all of this and that, and that money makes yeah. lots of other things possible, is it tempting for you to reach for a, a retail partnership with restoration hardware or oh. a, a, a way of sort of quickly making a, a oh, bunch no. of money? No. That doesn't appeal to you? No. If I really wanted to make money, I would not be in the furniture industry. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be honest, right? Like, not that great of a not that great of a business model. It's a tough industry to make a lot of money, but yeah, I mean, especially like manufacturing. Like, you know, if you yeah. told me, if you told my twenty year old self, like, you would have the challenges that you have now, like manufacturing and like talent and all the different things around it. Like, part of my story and me building this company mm-hmm. is also like we're. It's like a redemption story for my father too. And his, his, that whole town, everybody's out of work. It was a dying steel town. There was no work anywhere. It was just like nothing. And money was always a thing. And it was hard and it struggled. And my parents, when I grew up, we were poor, you know, and that's okay. A lot of us did or, you know, like I I had food and we had clothes and I was very fortunate compared to most, I'll say. Yeah. But I'll say that I also watched my father love making things with his hands and working with his hands, but not having anywhere to do it. Hmm. So isn't it my also, it makes sense that my story is that I'm creating this place and this opportunity for people like that to be able to do. And, and I have, and it is. Well, and it, and it seems as if, I mean, you were talking about this earlier about sort of reshoring manufacturing and, and mm-hmm. bringing so much of this back to the States. Yeah. It once wasn't a, an economic model that could work, right? But it seems as if it's working for, for you and it seems as if you're able to scale this business and, and continue to hire people and, and you seem to be able to make the margins work to make all of this. Absolutely. I mean... I know how to be profitable. I know how to run a profitable company. And 
and we're going to keep getting better at it. But yes, like I'm proud that we make things here Hmm. with my own community of people that love to make things and we get to do it for a living because that was all that I wanted when I got out of school. So I just want that. I imagine I just surround myself with other people that want that same things that I want. And, you know, and I think, and I also, you know, it's sad. It's sad watching my town and many other towns throughout the Rust Belt. It's gone. All of it. Mm. We don't make anything in this country. And when we say, when people say they make stuff in this country, it's assembled here. (laughs) I'm proud and happy to be part of our small community that there's a lot of us who really are doing it you know, which is really great. And I'm proud of them too. And I'm, I'm proud of myself. And we, I know uh, it, ma- it matters to me. It matters to me that we make things and I hope that it enriches my life and I hope it enriches everybody else's life. And do you feel that that's an important story that really resonates with the designers that are specifying your product? Do you feel that that made in America, that American manufacturing, do you, do you think that's part of what helps them to, to sell your product ultimately to their clients? It helps them qualify it because it's, it's, it's an education game. You know, it's tough because we, we live in a quantitative world living in the information age, right? Mm. And I think our designers, we, we have conversations with them all the time about it. And they love coming and visiting. And I fly them in with their clients at time to do a VIP tour and glass blowing experience. And we talk about it all the time. They're like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, we make every screw too. You know, like everything. You know, and there's, there's a richness to it and a wonderful, it's real craft. And um, so... Yes, I do believe it is communicated and, and helping qualify because, you know, the stuff's very expensive. And especially for what we do, we, it's all statement fixture or statement pieces stuff, right? Yeah. So it's really, and, it's, and it's, it's part sculptural and very organic and it's not, it's not easily customizable and it's not cookie cutter. And it's like, it has a lot of hand feel and hand sculptural elements, right? So... Absolutely. It's definitely a part of it. And, but I will, I, I will also say I'm not exactly sure it's a driver to like close a sale. You'll have to ask designers about that. But. Well, and, but, and, and I wonder about that though, because I feel as if so many designers today talk about the need or the desire to have a story to tell about a brand to, and, and yeah. off, right. And, and to, yeah. you know, it, it's sort of like they, they need that tool to, to explain, to your point, why it's worth spending the extra money for, for John Pomp lighting. For sure. Uh, right? Or that, that title console table, uh, right? Absolutely. And you're right. And to be able to explain that and, and to share with what we do, and you come through my facility, like, man, it's all like art school graduates and real craftspeople, like with right. real families, like real we love it and it's what we do. So absolutely sharing the story is, is an incredible part of what they do with, for our product. And, and it's what makes it special. All their clients just want something like really special. And when designers come to come to visit you, John, do you, do you tell them they can bring their skateboard? (laughs) There is a facility 
there I, to you know on a few that I know that appreciate it. I let I let them know that <laughs> you know come come and break a bone with me. <laughs> it's have a good you, bonding experience. Have you have you broken a few bones with the? Uh, no, you know what? I'll, but I'm I'm not too far away. I okay. did just have shoulder surgery uh, from just but just from wear and tear through the years from surfing and such and whatever and skateboarding um and we should explain for listeners the reason i was joking about the skateboarding as well is that there is i mean you yeah. you, you you tell people what, what yeah yeah so there, yeah I mean. so i have um i have a room we're inside of a sixty-five thousand square foot facility here and so it's a big facility and um i have a lot of space for a lot of tools and a lot of stuff and i have uh <laughs> I have a room in the back that's uh, shared with product development, and it's kind of like my personal art studio. Um, some some of my team members call it the fun fun room. And we <laughs> um, and actually during the pandemic, this is a pandemic story. To be honest with you, uh, the pandemic was going down, and I was like, "Looks like we're gonna have a lot of time on our hands." I was like, "I can't sit around at home." Like, <laughs> my, and my son was like learning to skateboard. I was skating with him at the skate park during the pandemic, and I was like. I was like, you really love this. You're like, yeah. All right, let's go build a let's go build a skate ramp. And so I build a mini ramp back in the back. And during the pandemic, I you know I was blowing glass, having fun, skateboarding with my kids. <laughs> How and, great! Uh, I love that. Yeah, we had a we had a great time. Yeah. One of the things that's often frustrating for manufacturers like yourself is people copying each other's work. And knockoffs, and 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 that's been an issue that's bubbled yeah. up a lot lately. And I'm yeah. and I'm wondering what your take is. I know sometimes it's flattering to see someone <laughs> make make something remarkably kind of? similar to you. I guess, but yeah, I think it's shameful. It's just you know, it is what it is. It's shitty and it's shameful and it's different. For a lot of us, obviously, we're like so passionate about what we do, and and we, you know, us artists and designers, we all we've carved a life out to like differentiate ourselves and to make things differently, to find our unique voices, to express ourselves, and it's kind of funny that other companies try to exist by emulating who I am or who somebody else is, and it's cute, but. In the end, uh, my wife is pretty hellbound on it, but she's really she's really good. So we work with our corporate lawyers up in New York, and but we we pull patents all the time in in America, Europe, and uh, China, and for all of our pieces. And now that we're at a scale, we can afford to do plenty of that work. Uh, we do. So so you patent, and then you and then when you see things, you you go after people. Uh huh. We send letters, and you, do. you know we engage. We engage, we engage as far as we need to engage. Um, but listen, I'll be honest with you. Like I'm like a racehorse. I keep the blinders on and I look forward mm. and I let my wife and the team take care of that stuff. And I'm only interested in making new cool shit that they're going to want to copy. But the other thing that I do here too is I make some like really hard to copy stuff here. <laughs> so, and because it's so organic and sculptural, like you can kind of try to, you know, like yeah. you can try, but it won't even be close. Um, but if you want to be something that you're proud of, do you wake up in the morning and tell your kids that you copy this other artist's work and that you feed them because you steal from somebody else? 
if you feel good about that, okay. But I tell you what, I get up in the morning and I'm proud of what I do. Mm. So I can sleep. Tell me what you're most excited about that you are working on and that you're developing right now. Tell me what's really got you going. Oh man, it's been really a long, difficult road scaling this company. And it's still a very modest size in the big picture, right? Like, okay, I, I, I know. But I own the building. It's a 100,000 square foot building, Dennis. I'm only using 65,000 right now. I plan to fill it. So there's all sorts of extra capacity that you are Tons. going to fill with. Okay. Tons. Yeah. And it's kind of like I'm at a cool place where I'm like, part of my job, obviously, is running the company, you know, doing the CEO responsibilities, but the other half of it is creative director. And so it's been a real privilege to get the company to the point where I have people smarter than me to like really run it. Mm. And I'm able to spend more time in the creative director seat. And I'm really fortunate. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I didn't think it was going to take this long to do that. I didn't, I didn't know that I was going to be able to do that. So I will say that I'm now at a place now where I've never been more creative since I was in my 20s when I started the company. So I plan to, as we continue to grow, be able to spend more and more time in the creative director seat. So we have a lot of stuff that I'm very excited about. And it's all the things that I've always wanted to get to. Dining tables, dining chairs, other categories that I'm, I don't have any pieces in. Mm. I just spent, I started, I wanted to do dining, glass dining tables. We're working on them now and they're enormous. And I have a prototype for one and it's, I had to build a kiln. It took me a year to build this kiln because the kiln doesn't exist. It's so big that I had to custom build this kiln and now we're prototyping the table. So I had to build the kiln to make the table, you know? So anyhow, so it's a, it's, you know, 12 foot dining table and it's 2000 pounds of glass, you know? Wow. Wow. It's pretty crazy. They, they take about uh, a month in the, in the kiln. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be very, they're going to be very special kind of one of a kind item. It's going to be very expensive, but very, very, very special. I'm, filling out all the different categories that are going to help support my new, the new art direction of all this, like this liquid furniture that I'm, I'm involved in with making glass look like metal and metal look like glass and these transitory states. So, so I have a lot to do. And, and, and it sounds like you've got a lot of exciting things that you're, that you're working on. And, yeah. and it sounds like we're going to see a lot of new product coming in the, in the coming year. You bet. So we look forward to that. John, thank you so much for making the time to talk. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.